Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader here with The Turning Point. We're here every Monday at 4 p.m. on prn.fm. And um, there are podcasts available after that. Anytime you want to get in touch with me about anything you hear on this program, uh, go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and you can contact me there or get on my mailing list, and certainly you can comment anything you hear here. Um, campaign finance laws and campaign finance rules, they are to a lot of people who grew up in my generation and to some people who don't quite know what they are, at this point, something almost like of a sad joke. They are like almost an antique that would be in a glass case somewhere in the Capitol building. 
certainly uh, campaign finance mostly from rich people to politicians and not just presidential campaigns, but up and down the line is completely out of control. However, there are some people who um, believe that this fight can be won, this battle against the um, out-of-control campaign finance um, tidal wave that has overwhelmed any laws, rules, or democracy. And we have a guest with us today who is one of those people. Uh, John Bonifez is with us. Hiya. Hi, how are you? Okay. Thanks you for coming? having me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, he, Mr. Bonifaz, is the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, which is? Which is a national campaign launched on the day of the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United, the FEC, more than six years ago, to fight for a constitutional amendment to overturn that ruling and the doctrines underlying that ruling, as well as to push back in the courts to reclaim our democracy. And um, the organization is funded. How, how is it funded? We're supported by individual donors all across the country, as well as foundations. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we get support and welcome it from people all over the nation, uh, tax-deductible donations. Okay, and uh, one, because uh, I'd like uh, people who, if they have any extra money left over and haven't been giving it to one of their favorite candidates, which on this program... Up front, I could always tell you is Bernie Sanders, but uh, that's just my point of view. Um, where would they send money to your organization? Because that's well, they the, can you know. go. Yeah, no, we'd appreciate the support. Uh, we, they can go right to our website at freespeechforpeople.org and donate online, or if they prefer to mail in a check, they can hit that donate button and learn where to send in the uh, donation, the tax deductible donation. But we do rely on on supporters all across the country to help us carry this work forward in the courts and in the streets organizing for a constitutional amendment. So it's free, freespeechforpeople.org? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, let me give people a little idea of your background. Um, Mr. Bonifaz has been involved in uh, key voting rights battles in the country for more than two decades. And um, he uh, led a series, pioneered a series of court challenges applying political equality principles that have helped to redefine the campaign finance question as a basic voting rights issue of our time. That's true. No more one person, one vote doesn't look like until we fix this. Um, and it says here, you initiated and led a legal strategy for revisiting Buckley v. Vallejo in the courts. But can you explain the other case? Yes, uh, that's a 1976 Supreme Court case that really has set us on the course of unlimited campaign spending and the whole problem of money and politics that we have today. It emerged after the Watergate scandal where Congress decided because of all the secret cash flowing through the Nixon White House that it was going to put overall limits on how much candidates could spend in elections, including from their own bank accounts, but also from their wealthy friends. And it was going to place limits on how much independent, so-called independent groups could spend in elections, as well as campaign contribution limits and the Federal Election Commission getting created. So this was a, a broad package of reforms that was passed by the United States Congress in 1974, again in the wake of the Watergate scandal. And two years later, the Supreme Court uh, in Buckley v. Vallejo equated money with speech and struck down the campaign spending limits as violative of the First Amendment rights of those who have the money to spend it in elections. Now, it's important to note that they upheld the contribution limits, 
and those limits have still been upheld to this day, though they've been adjusted, uh, you know, since then uh, for inflation. But we have this system of unlimited campaign spending because of Buckley v. Vallejo and because of this false idea that money equals speech and that if you have large sums of money, you can spend it up to the sky and it's protected under the First Amendment. Who, who, what, uh, what was the, the, you know, the composition of the court uh, that made this decision? Well, actually, uh, you know, these were both Democratic and Republican appointees. It was an eight-to-one decision. It's was worth it? noting. Was it? Hmm. Yes, it was. And, and, and it's worth noting that Byron Wright, uh, the justice who dissented, was the one justice on the court who had actually had experience running in an election before uh, joining the court. So what we saw here was a court unwilling to look at the real-world dynamics of politics and understand the role that money uh, can play in drowning out the voices of ordinary citizens. Uh, You know, ever since that, that ruling, we've been living under, again, this fabricated notion that money equals speech and that it's somehow an anathema to the First Amendment to limit the voices of some in order for other voices to be heard. But in actuality, we do this all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time under First Amendment jurisprudence. So if you're in a town which has a town meeting or a city council or even the United States Senate or U.S. House, there are time restrictions on how much you get to speak in order for others uh, to be heard. Right. Uh, and, And, you know, this is understood as a basic right of of all of us to ensure that our voices get heard and that no one has the first amendment right to drown out other people's speech in fact in 1949 the court supreme court articulated that very principle in a case known as Kovacs v Cooper but in the context of money and politics the court has got it wrong and has completely disregarded the rest of that first amendment jurisprudence and somehow looked at the idea of money expenditures in elections as fully protected uh, by the First Amendment uh, without any ability to limit such expenditures. What? Uh, so that was uh, that was the first real Citizens United case. It I was. Mean, to use it, a certain, yeah. You know. You're absolutely right. That was, that was the ruling that set us on this course. Citizens United made it exponentially worse. But what we have to do as a nation is review and reverse, not just Citizens United, but Buckley v. Vallejo, and we have to get back to that basic idea that everyone's voice must be heard in the political process, one person, one vote, and that no one has the right to drown out other people's speech. Well, I know that such cases, uh, to put it mildly, are astoundingly complex as they work their way up to the Supreme Court, and the decisions can be also very complex. But is it possible for you to, uh, to sum up uh, what the reasoning, if that's the correct word, what the reasoning was of that court originally and what uh, the, uh, so we know what we're dealing with, uh, and Citizens United. I mean, how did they arrive at the fact uh, with the original case there and the Citizens United that uh, money equals speech? Well, so the idea that they had is that when you want to, uh, you know, distribute a pamphlet, or when you want to, uh, you know, pay for a sound system, or even buy a television ad, or buy an ad in the newspaper, uh, that that requires the expenditure of money. And so given that speech has to be paid for by money in those kinds of examples, they equated money 
with speech. They also, as I said, upheld the contribution limits uh, directly to candidates. So what they found is that even with money equaling speech, it was permissible under the First Amendment to limit how much you could give directly to candidates under the theory that those expenditures, in other words, those contributions, could be corrupting uh, to the political process what, that you what, could... What was the limit? I'm sorry. What was the well, limit? Well, the limit at that time was $1,000 uh, directly giving to a candidate. All right. Uh, now, in, you know, since the McCain-Feingold law that was passed, uh, uh, you know, a number of years ago, that limit has been doubled and then adjusted to inflation. So today's limit is $2,700 in the 2016 election cycle. Mm-hmm. And then if you double that, if you're, you know, for the primary election, for the general. So, you know, one wealthy individual is able to give $5,400 to a candidate who is both in the primary and the general, which is an enormous sum of money in and of itself, uh, and obviously not attainable for the vast majority of Americans. But, you know, the question for the court was, you know, would that uh, situation of unlimited donations directly to candidates be corrupting? and the court found it would, so it upheld those mm-hmm. contribution limits. But it would not be corrupting, the court found, to make independent expenditures or to make overall expenditures for a campaign. Which ultimately led to things like super PACs, right? Yes and no. Super PACs were not invented out of Buckley Vallejo. What, what happened uh, you know, after the Citizens United ruling is there was a federal appeals court ruling known as speechnow.org VFEC two months after the Citizens United ruling. So in March of 2010, the Speech Now ruling was issued by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, mm-hmm. and it essentially thought it was following the Citizens United ruling by saying, well, if corporations and unions can make unlimited expenditures, as the Citizens United ruling had, had decided, then therefore independent PACs uh, you know, should not have any donation limits to those PACs, and you could have what is now known as a super PAC that effectively is able uh, to solicit unlimited donations, that those expenditures also would not be corrupting. Uh, now, I think the court in that particular case, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, got it wrong, even under the current jurisprudence dating back to Buckley, because the question should not have been focused on the expenditure side of the super PACs, mm-hmm. but on the donations. In other words, if we now agree, as, as even this you know court today has agreed, that somebody like Sheldon Adelson mm-hmm. cannot give more than $2,700 directly to a candidate uh, running in an election, then why should he be able to give $100 million to a super PAC supporting that candidate? It evades the contribution limits. It undermines those contribution limits. So we actually think that even under the Citizens United majority, which, of course, no longer exists with Justice Scalia passing away, but even under that current majority, speech now may have been wrongly decided under their eyes. So uh, as far as uh, trying to get a constitutional amendment, uh, there's a certain number of states that have to approve this. Uh, That's one issue which I just want to go back to in a second. But... Uh, where are we in terms of, let's say, a Democratic um, candidate, whoever it is, um, um, gets to appoint one or two of the Supreme Court justices in the next, you know, starting January 20th, yeah. whatever. Okay. Yeah. So what are you involved in bringing this case 
or a case like it back to court, and also what's up with the um, with the um, you know constitutional amendment in terms of progress? Right. So first on on the on the court based fight, we are very much involved in creating test cases that would give the court, the United States Supreme Court, an opportunity to revisit and reverse Citizens United, SpeechNow.org, and even Buckley v. Vallejo. We believe that we're facing now a potential transformational change in the landscape of these rulings and this jurisprudence with Justice Scalia's passing and with this court vacancy. And you're absolutely right that with the appointment of one even uh, new uh, justice filling that vacancy, we could see a dramatic shift in the way the court rules on these questions of money and politics. While it was 8 to 1 back in 1976, it was 5 to 4 in Citizens United. And those four, uh, I think, are ready to revisit and reverse Citizens United uh, with another justice willing to join them. And, you know, I think that's really what has to be the fight now in the courts on money and politics, creating these test cases, going on the offense rather than only engaging in the defense mm-hmm. uh, and, and pushing for the court to revisit and reverse these rulings and set us on a course that is consistent with the democratic vision of one person, one vote, and political equality for all. Now, now there are ballot initiatives, um, that, that current, I assume, in California and Washington, for calling for a constitutional amendment. Yes. How many, yes. How so many states the, have ballot initiatives? Well, so there's 24 states that have ballot uh, measures mm-hmm. uh, that allow for going to the ballot for a voter pass uh, view of uh, you know, resolution or even uh, statutory change. Uh, now, of the, uh, of the states in the country, we've seen now 16 uh, that have already gone on record calling for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United and to reclaim our democracy. Those states include Colorado and Montana, where voters passed statewide ballot measures calling uh, for such an amendment. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2012, November 2012. Uh, 75% of the voters in Montana passed the ballot measure that we were involved with, with Common Cause. Uh, And that included... You, you know, voters who had voted for Mitt Romney. Fifty-five percent of the voters in Montana voted for Mitt Romney to be president of the United States. Seventy-five percent voted for our ballot measures. So we see, and, and Colorado, same issue, 75 percent approval that year. So what we see with these ballot measures is the fact that there's cross-partisan appeal mm-hmm. for this call for an amendment to say that money doesn't equal speech, that corporations are not people, and that we want to put an end to this unlimited campaign spending regime uh, we live under. And you're right, in California and Washington State, uh, we are looking at ballot measures going to the ballot in 2016 that similarly will call for a 28th Amendment. Washington State's already moving forward. California, we're in the midst of seeing it go through the legislature after a state Supreme Court fight uh, that ensured that it would go to the ballot. Uh, And the governor will need to either sign it or let it go forward, but assuming uh, that happens, uh, we will see the opportunity for voters statewide in California to vote on this measure as well. Now, uh, states that don't have ballot initiatives, these things have to be uh, approved by the uh, legislatures of the states, right? 
Well, that's right, and, and I, I should clarify that what's happening in these states that have already passed these measures is these are non-binding measures that call on Congress to pass an amendment bill and send it to the states for ratification. So under Article 5 of the Constitution, there are two routes to amend the United States Constitution. One is to have Congress, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, pass an amendment bill, send it to the states for ratification, and then three-quarters of the states, 38 states, must ratify for it to be placed into the Constitution. In the 27 times that we've amended the United States Constitution and had uh, amendments to expand and defend our democracy, we have done it via that route, Mm -hmm. Congress passing an amendment bill and sending it to the states for ratification. The other route that's available under Article 5, which we've never used to amend the Constitution, uh, is the route of the states themselves calling for a constitutional convention. And that's not what is involved with these California and Washington state measures or Colorado, Montana. So we're not involved in that in that particular route, uh, but that is the other route that's available under Article 5. Now, when it comes to, are there any prominent politicians or politicians in a position of national uh, power, like Congress, people in the House of Representatives, senators, uh, are there governors? I mean, all of these people depend on uh, not everybody is Bernie Sanders, right? And he's right. really in the minority, in the small minority. Um, it's almost as if um, you're at war with other people when you're running for office. And to not accept large donations from whatever it's unions, corporations, individuals. And I mean, when I accept, you know, the, there's a thin line between, obviously, everybody understands this, between. Uh, a personal contribution to an actual campaign and to a PAC or a super PAC. Right. I mean, it's, it's just a ridiculous line as far as I'm... Right. That's my opinion. But uh, are there any prominent politicians that are joining this fight or are willing... I mean, because otherwise yes. it's like you're putting down your weapon and letting somebody else shoot you, you know? Well, so, first of all, the call for a constitutional amendment is not applied to only one side of the political aisle, right? So... This is not about asking members of Congress to unilaterally disarm. We're asking for new sets of rules that allow for a level playing field, that allow for all voices to be heard, that ensure that no one can drown out other people's speech. And in fact, what we've seen all across the country where we've been involved in pushing for these resolutions in the states is that it's not just something that appeals to democratically elected officials. Uh, There are Republican uh, officials who also have come on uh, board. Uh, we've seen over 150 Republican elected officials at the state level join in the call for a constitutional amendment by voting for these resolutions in their state legislatures. We also, in Washington, uh, saw in September 2014 an historic vote on the floor of the United States Senate on the Democracy for All Amendment, which is one that we support and help to draft which would, again, overturn not just Citizens United but Buckley Vallejo and allow for overall spending limits. And 54 United States senators voted for that uh, Democracy for All amendment. Now, they were all Democrats. We tried. We were not successful in getting any Republican senators Hmm. to join. But since then, you know, even some Republican senators have said that they think it's time to amend the Constitution. Lindsey Graham, during his brief run for the presidency, uh, said this, uh, you know, Senator 
from North Carolina said this, uh, South Carolina rather, said, said this point. So I think that we are, in fact, seeing a cross-partisan appeal uh, with respect to the call for an amendment, and that it really will need to come from the grassroots, not from Washington. Um, but ultimately the pressure will be placed uh, so hotly on, on Washington to act that they'll be compelled to act. Well, I hope so. Uh, there was an article on Public Citizen. You know that organization yes. online? Okay, Public Citizen. Um, an article that says, led by mega donors, Wall Street is crushing previous records for outside political spending. Financial sector accounts for more than half of all money given by donors contributing $1 million or more to the presidential uh, super PACs. And... Um, uh, later on, just run. It says so far, so far, and this is just a recent article. So far in the 2016 cycle, the financial sector has accounted for 44.2 percent of giving to outside groups. That's yeah. PACs and super PACs, public citizen fact. In other words, we're way uh, ahead of where we've ever been before with this kind of thing. Yeah, it's gotten completely out of control, and and this is why the uh, reference to this being more of a plutocracy than a democracy is absolutely correct. I mean, mm -hmm. what we're seeing now are more and more big money forces that are controlling our elections and our politics in a way that undermine the fundamental promises of American democracy of, for, and by the people and political equality for all. And that, that is why what is needed today is a broad democracy movement to fight to reclaim our republic and reclaim that promise of one person one vote. And, you know, I, I recognize to some of your listeners that this may sound like pie in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. That somehow, yeah. how does this guy think that we're going to get a constitutional amendment? You know, uh, we've heard this, right? That we just don't do this anymore. You know, that's just not something that's possible. Well, the fact is that we have passed constitutional amendments before in our nation's history to expand and defend our democracy. 27 times we've done this before seven of those times to overturn egregious Supreme Court rulings. We did it every decade in the last century except the 1940s and the 1980s, and we can and we must do it again. This may seem like something that's not going to happen overnight, and I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not going to happen overnight. But a sustained people's grassroots movement can, in fact, achieve the same kind of change that prior movements in our history have achieved. Women, as we know, did not get the right to vote in this country because men in power thought it was a good idea. Right. They fought, they organized, and they won the 19th Amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing women the right to vote. We did not eliminate the poll tax, a fee charged to voters in order to vote, uh, because those in power thought it was a good idea. There was a vibrant civil rights movement uh, that included many, many dramatic changes, including the 24th Amendment to the Constitution forever banning poll taxes in federal elections. So this is one of those moments in our history uh, where a constitutional amendment is needed to defend and protect our democracy, and with a lot of other sweeping reforms that are needed, but that is, I think, the engine of the reform movement mm -hmm. on money and politics because it, it defines the question very clearly. Is it we the people or is it we the corporations and big money interests? And if it's we the people, then we have to rise up and demand a 28th Amendment to the Constitution. 
which is why it's exciting to a lot of people, no matter what the outcome, um, to see uh, a, a prominent candidate who is not really out of the race yet, exactly, right. um, you know, pounding on this same issue right. for good reason. So it will be extraordinary to see what happens if he... Um, who has relied on? Um, I'm not sure that he. There are no pa- super PACs as far as there are no su- there are no okay. super PACs behind the Sanders. Sanders campaign. No, I I think there's no question that Senator Sanders has demonstrated the broad appeal that there is for overhauling our nation's mm-hmm. campaign finance system and for saying that we don't want big money donors controlling our politics and our government. And and Hillary Clinton herself has in fact. Uh, put out a broad platform, although she's not spoken about it a lot, but her platform similarly calls for a constitutional amendment and for public funding elections and a host oh, of well, other uh, important reforms. I mean, but that's, that's <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Well, but, uh, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm pointing out is that the fact is, is that pressure has an impact. And mm-hmm. so I think that her laying out that platform was a recognition that she had to if she was going to have any hope of appealing to the base that Senator Sanders has demonstrated. And uh, and whether or not Senator Sanders becomes a nominee, the fact is is that he has laid the groundwork for this movement, making clear that whoever becomes president needs to be accountable to these basic demands mm-hmm. of getting big money out of politics. So, you know, we, we could certainly you know, discuss the question whether she's, uh, you know, somebody who's the best torchbearer for that cause. I, I, I completely understand the, the view uh, that she's, uh, she's not. She's been somebody who's, uh, you know, been taking a lot of big money herself. But, but your, 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 your point is uh, obviously very well taken. I mean, whether or not she means a word she says uh, or she ever intends to do anything about it, she has been pulled publicly uh, Correct. To make this statement, yeah. Correct. And even Senator Sanders has made the point that no one person, no one president can do this alone. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this was, frankly, in my, in my view, the mistake uh, that a lot of supporters of, Sen- of Senator and then President Barack Obama made on, on this issue, among others, right, is that once he got elected, you, you know, everybody was like, okay, we accomplished it. Now it's up to him. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the movement politics that came about via that campaign dissipated. And so a big, big question happening right now is, what happens to the movement politics in this current election cycle? Will it sustain itself? Will it go beyond whoever becomes the nominee of the Democratic Party, the nominee of the Republican Party? Will it go into the general election? Will it go beyond the general election? Will it go into 2017? Because what's required here is a sustained people's movement, not an election year movement, mm-hmm. but a sustained people's year movement over many years. We are not, uh, you know, going to get the constitutional amendment done by January 2017. Even well, we, it's going to take time. Okay, and 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 just the same, it's going to take time to get these court battles won. Mm-hmm. But but it is, I think, important to stay, keep our eyes on the prize, and focus on the fact that these elected officials need to be pressured to act. Uh, you, you know, uh, this is this is essentially the essence of how change gets created in our country. It's not from the top down; it's from the bottom up. 
Okay, we are going to uh, uh, move on to another section of the program, but I, I really appreciate your coming on here. This is something, as you pointed out yourself, that uh, people are extremely cynical about, but uh, there are places like your place that are pushing for this in the courts and in other ways, and this movement has to be sustained no matter who is supporting who. And we've been talking with John Bonifaz, um He's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People. And before we uh, jump off here, can you give the uh, website again for people who want to see what you're doing and help out? Absolutely. Uh, we invite people to join us in this campaign at freespeechforpeople.org. We have a, ma- a number of resources there for people to learn more about this issue, but also to learn how to get involved in this broad movement to reclaim our democracy, and I thank you very much for the time. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your what you're doing here. I mean, somebody's got to keep the thing sustained no matter what, uh, what the headlines are in the newspapers. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Uh, this is Mike Fader, and uh, we are going to go very shortly to another guest, and um, we'll take a little musical break here, and I'll have some water, and we'll all calm down for a second, then come back. Okay, all right, we're back here. This is Mike Fader, and a lot of you are familiar with, I'm sure all of you are familiar with, what happened out in Nevada the other day and uh, the ripples that have been coming out of it. Uh, a lot of these ripples are very deceptive. In fact, uh, kind of um, a lot of them are downright lies, which have been repeated to the point where now they have become the official truth, if uh, corporate media is the official truth. I'm talking about uh, what happened uh, in Nevada uh, and the reports that uh, mushroomed in a way seems to be out of control um, about uh, Bernie Sanders supporters having uh, something that amounted to, quote-unquote, a kind of a riot, throwing chairs, screaming, yelling, whatever. And this was repeated over and over again, uh, particularly by, as I say, um, corporate media, that is to say, places like... Um, MSNBC and CNN, certainly the New York Times, which has been trying to stomp on Bernie uh, Sanders' head and his supporters and equating them with um, the incipient stormtroopers of Trump's people uh, for from the day he started his campaign. And um, also NPR is repeating this now, too. Um, and we have with us uh, somebody who has um, written an article for Counterpunch. It's called The Faux, uh, how do you say this word, fracas? Let's say fracas, right? It's n- yeah. It's not the right French, but f- The Faux Fracas in Nevada, How a Reporter Manufactured a Riot. And this is by Doug Johnson Hatlam, who is with us today. Hiya. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. So Yeah, sorry I kept you waiting there. We ran a little late with the other... Um, the other guest. Um, let me tell. Well, he was very interesting. I enjoyed. Yeah, I mean the the idea of uh, you know after after some candidate who is you know passionate and overwhelming and uh, a big incident uh, like the you know the election coming up and everything, but this other stuff has to be. This is the bottom line. What he was talking about. But let me tell people about you a little bit. Uh, Doug Johnson Hatlam 
is a contributor to Counterpunch, and he is best known for his work as a street pastor, street pastor, and advocate with Toronto's homeless population from 2005 to 2013. And he's now a film producer and freelance writer based in Chicago. So um, everybody's familiar with this fact, and just as recently as um, I grew up at the New York Times. You know, this is a, I'll, since you're a pastor, I'll confess. You know, I, I grew up at the New York Times. I live in New York City. It was considered, a, you know, that was the paper of record. I've since learned, you know, way better, especially when it comes to uh, domestic political reporting and even, you know, even foreign affairs reporting. But there's this attitude they've had towards Sanders has been extraordinary from the beginning. And, and I guess you're saying it's also shared by other corporate media. So what happened was, uh, maybe you can describe what happened, because just yesterday, Maureen Dowd, in a political, uh, you know, opinion piece, um, mentioned it again, you know, that uh, chairs were thrown and people were being riotous. And there was an article in, um, in The New Yorker, a profile of Donald Trump and what his movement, and they equate uh, Sanders' uh, behavior, his supporters' behavior, and even his behavior with the worst of Trump and Trump's supporters' behavior. All this is now, according to them, proved by what happened in Nevada. But what happened in Nevada? Well, I, I think what you're seeing is the, the monstrous middle, as I like to sometimes call it, is desperate to hang on to uh, anything that will uh, retain their power. So this story about, oh, we've got these wingnuts on the left and on the right, uh, Trump, Sanders, um, is what they need uh, to survive. They're, they're feeling very threatened now. And um, what really happened in Nevada is that there was, uh, at the very, very least, um, uh, if not outright disenfranchisement, there was really poor uh, management of the entire convention from the chair, and it seemed like she was getting instructions to do so, sometimes things being whispered in her ear by unknown characters. Um, you know, uh, and and it's just not how you run something uh, in an orderly fashion when you have thousands of delegates. It's very close in terms of um, who has the most delegates, and in fact, it's disputed. And in, instead of taking um, head counts, uh, as most caucuses and conventions do when there's mm -hmm. close issues, she continued to, to govern entirely by voice votes, even when one side sounded louder than the other. If you're going to take a voice vote, then you've got to go with who's loudest. Um, uh, if, if you want an exact count and think your, your side has uh, got the most people, even though they're not as loud, then you, then you take a head count or do actually ballots, and, and that would that would have been acceptable, but there had been tensions in the weeks leading up to it, lawsuits and so forth, and uh, a particular reporter, John Ralston, uh, Ralston reports, very well known, um, uh, you know, he tends to sometimes go against uh, certain politicians, sometimes before them, but once he makes up his mind, he, he tells a story, he tells a narrative, he doesn't tell, he doesn't try and tell both sides or uh, taken uh, things into account well. He, he, he comes up with a story and he sticks to it. And, and he came up with a story before the convention even started for what was going to happen with Sanders supporters. And the grand finale to that narrative was the chair throwing, which, as we've since discovered, has never happened. You mentioned NPR as some somebody that included mm -hmm. this. Well, thankfully, they have an ombudsman who took this uh, seriously, unlike uh, the New York Times, who's without their public editor right now, Ma Margaret Sullivan, who is very good, has moved on, but um, uh, they haven't replaced her yet. So 
um, well, I, I think uh, I, I think even if the if they I mean even when she was there or even if she, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they 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 have unbridled antipathy towards Sanders and would believe anything yeah. they choose to believe. You know, but at least she dinged him twice and said, "Yes, your coverage against uh, your coverage against Sanders, which is basically what it is, is uh, is biased." Well, that's so true. She's, she's, true. She's report she reported that multiple times, and I think if she was there, she would take up this question of chair throwing. Uh, I really think she would. There was enough uh, dispute about it. The NPR ombudsman did and said not only was there no chair throwing, but this was the linchpin of their entire NPR reporting saying that Sanders supporters had been violent. And without that, uh, without evidence of that, which she found there wasn't sufficient evidence for that, um, then uh, then she said there was no violence. You have mm-hmm. no reporting on violence and, and we've misreported uh, Snopes, um, you know, which does a lot of debunking of conspiracy theories or affirming other facts, said uh, this was unverifiable. Um, uh, even PolitiFact and and the guy who was there was the guy at the convention for PolitiFact and basically takes up Ralston's stories. He's one of Ralston's friends. With respect to the chair throwing, said there isn't uh, there isn't any um, uh, picture or video uh, evidence to back up this claim. So, has, this, has this reporter, uh, John Rawson, issued any sort of um, qualification, let alone an apology for all this? No, and this is the most interesting thing. He had been there most of the day. He left by the time the supposed events happened. He was uh, said he had other things to do. He reported on Twitter that he'd left. But many people, including NPR, uh, thought he was reporting as an eyewitness when he said that there had been chair throwing. He uh, walked that back about 48 hours later after MSNBC had reported him as the source of this and said, no, I wasn't there. Uh, but he said a reporter, a local reporter, was who, who witnessed it, and I believe him. And he linked to his report on his Twitter feed. But then he had him uh, a couple of days later on his show, uh, PBS, he runs a PBS show, um, Ralston Reports, on um, uh, there in Nevada. And he had uh, this reporter on the show, and he asked him directly about it, and the reporter would not affirm on the show, no matter how many times Ralston asked, uh, the hmm. reporter would not say that he had seen the chairs thrown with his own eyes. And so, um, you know, Ralston had lost his original source, but he, he, he had been taken, you know, a chair of the Nevada Democratic Party, clearly <laughs> quite biased, um, uh, 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 saying that chairs had been thrown. And Ralston tried everything he could. He won't, he won't walk back anything on this. And, and at the other time, he said, oh, I think this issue is a distraction. Of course it's a distraction, but it's a distraction that's being used to bludgeon Sanders. And to and prove everything that they want us yeah. to believe. Yeah. 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 Right. And, he, and, he, um, and he's the source of that <laughs> distraction. He's the source of this idea that Sanders supporters are, like you talked about, these the stormtroopers like Trump, um, and uh, trying to make out that his supporters are violent, like people are at, at uh, Donald Trump rallies. And where, you know, there's good video evidence every time it happens at the Donald Trump rallies. And just like there were video cameras all over the place there, there was surveillance video mm-hmm. all over the place there. There were police officers present there. No one was arrested. Um, uh, so um, this this idea yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Know, is, is unsupported. It's completely unsupported. Now, the, now these justifications uh, are used uh, in the most... <laughs> The most incredible ways. There is an article in the New Yorker, a profile of Trump I mentioned before, by Adam Gopnik, who's a very good writer. And mm-hmm. uh, 
he was actually starting to compare. I mean, this is uh, apropos of, uh, you know, comparing the two fringe elements on one party and the other party. I mean, it just drives me nuts when they do that, to compare Sanders supporters who are righteously outraged, not to the point of violence, but righteously outraged by the disenfranchisement of their movement and uh, by uh, the comparisons between them and what could easily be incipient sort of stormtroopers on the side of Trump. Yeah. I think everybody can see that. And this guy, Gopnik, was referring back to history and talking about uh, comparing, I guess you'd have to know more about history, but I, I'm sort of a history buff, but comparing Sanders people to the real left-wing uh, fringe and, the, and violent communists fighting uh, moderate uh, uh, you know, Democrats or social Democrats in Germany without paying attention to who the real villain was. This is what, this is how far it's gone in intellectual circles. You know. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, it, it, it's so-called intellectual circles. I mean, well, yeah, I guess. these are. <laughs> I mean, people are smart, and they're they're making arguments that appeal to a certain set that they're writing to. Like you said, Adam's a great writer. He's done some great pieces over the years, but. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that's why I, I, I you know, I, I've done some writing previously. I've done some film producing. But when I saw this developing is when I started writing articles. I'm very glad you referred to the disenfranchisement because that was the real nub of the issue with uh, what happened in Nevada for Sanders supporters is that this is the, just the very tip of the iceberg of uh, what I, you know, what article I'm developing now uh, is all about, which is that there is a concerted effort, a concerted agenda in the Democratic Party to disenfranchise what they're calling Bernie's kids. And that's a quote that I'll be using in my next piece. I don't hmm. know when it will land, but um, there's a concerted effort to keep Bernie's kids from voting, from participating in caucuses and conventions. Um, and it's so it's very well documented by this point. And nobody like Gopnik or the Times or the Washington Post has been just as awful through all of this. Um, uh, uh, they're not taking those allegations seriously. If they bring them up, they bring them up only to mock them. When who uh, has reason not to call this election fraud, I understand. He, he got at the number of the issue in his first statement on Nevada at a California rally when he said the Democratic Party is going to have to decide whether it's going to welcome new voters uh, uh, and right. independents with, an op with open arms or whether it's going to continue trying to exclude them. And, and this is a concerted agenda. What, concerted what, agenda. What, uh, being, you know, uh, a member of the media, um, why are these people, why is the corporate media, this is partially rhetorical, but I'd like to hear what you <laughs> have to say. Why are they so terrified of Sanders and his people. Um, I mean, I understand this is not the democracy I was brought up to believe with the cherry trees and everything else, you know. But uh, why are they so uh, terrified? Why do they lie? Why are they going to such extremes to uh, and to self self destructive extremes in a way for democracy to disenfranchise millions of uh, potentially new? Uh, new, new voters, new blood to the Democratic Party, which is creaking along as a corporate machine for years and decades now. Why? Why is it so upsetting to them? Well, I don't think there's a unitary reason. I think there's a multitude of reasons, which we could name some of them. One is that the Clintons are very good at playing the media. They've been good at it for uh, 25 years and will continue to be good at it for as long as they're around. They know uh, strategies. 
they know what rhetoric works. They know um, who to pitch stuff to, how to get stuff through. And so some of it is, frankly, uh, the big media being naive. And um, so I would attribute that to some people. Other people, I think, are um, legitimately, understandably, very uh, uh, hopeful that that finally we'll have a, a, a woman president, and she won't be, you know, she won't, in their mind at least, be quite uh, Sarah Palin or Condoleezza Rice, and and that's a worthy goal. And so they're blinded by idealism about having uh, the first woman president. Others are corrupted by corporate. Uh, by being corporate media, as you talked about, and that they um, are part of this, this center-right uh, uh, yeah. empire, and they're proud of it, and they're going to sneer at anybody who uh, pretends as if this isn't the only way. And probably there's a fourth group that, that did buy into this idea, uh, and this is an older group. I mean, there's, there's I think, a serious fourth group of people that, and there's probably more than this, but uh, a fourth group that that really thinks Bernie Sanders is unelectable because he calls himself a socialist. There's a significant part of the Democratic establishment that's still hiding in the closet from Joseph McCarthy all yeah. these years later. Yeah, I think I think these people are, uh, and this is my generation too. I mean, uh, these people are completely out of touch with what's going on in this country. I mean, I you know, I have kids who are in their thirties, and um, <laughs> you know, I I you know I and I and I meet people all the time, people who are younger people, and. You know, I could just <laughs> the people my age, and I'm I'm seventy now. They they're like completely, uh, or I shouldn't say they, or as generalization, but a lot of them are completely out of touch with what is going on. Uh, you know, in the country in terms of politics and culture and everything else, and um, it's so self destructive if they want to have an actual real democratic party not to have new. It's like refusing new blood of some of a somebody who's dying from loss of blood. You know, it's yeah. Well, they've forgotten all about FDR. They can only remember Joseph McCarthy and Thatcher and Reagan and the Red Scare, mm-hmm. and uh, they are completely out of touch, as you're saying, with issues that are very important to those of us. And I'm just barely qualified under forty who have uh, mountains of uh, uh, student debt, um, no real job prospects. Even when they talk about um, unemployment numbers going down, these are. Uh, part-time jobs without real benefits, without uh, right. um, livable wages, and uh, and uh, a housing market that's just destroyed still since uh, since 2008. Um, and, and it's not that way for them and for their kids. They don't understand uh, why why people uh, are feeling pinched by student loan debt. They don't understand why people can't buy uh, get into housing. They don't understand why uh, people are feeling. Uh, unemployed or, or underemployed by the prospects that are out there, people putting in 60, 70 applications the jobs they're qualified for and not getting any of them, or even getting callbacks for interviews for any of mm-hmm. them. They just, they're so out of touch, they don't get what's driving the, the Sanders revolution. They don't get it at all. One more issue that, uh, <clears throat> that the Times uh, and some other places repeated was the quote unquote hundreds of death threats to the uh, chairwoman of the Nevada Democratic uh, Party, now, Roberta Lang. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, my article did some uh, somewhat to debunk this. Now I'd say some of those calls, uh, uh, I'd call them out as being awful, as harassment. And if she wasn't a public figure, they would be very close to meeting the definition of, of criminal harassment in the United States. So uh, I don't approve of some of them. Others of them, even ones that the Times played, are simply 
what happens when you do something completely unjust and untoward, as Roberta Lang did? The Times played one with a woman calling up and saying, I'm ashamed of, you should be ashamed of what you've done. That's perfectly legitimate uh, um, uh, questioning and behavior and the kind of message she should get. But some of them, you know, used very, uh, you know, swearing and swearing, that's fine, but some of them very sexist. Uh, one said that she, uh, it was exactly one comment, not hundreds, and it wasn't a death threat. They said, um, you know, you you should be uh, publicly executed, hung or burned, and, and that's completely over the top rhetoric. It's the kind of thing that's been around in uh, U.S. politics for 250 years. I'm a pacifist. I don't I don't approve of it. I don't think you should uh, call everybody who disagrees with you unpatriotic and say they should be executed for treason. It's uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I had some. I had people. A lot of people. Uh, actually, a lot of people in my generation had a lot of experience with that. If we didn't like it, we could go to Vietnam. We could go to Cuba. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So there's ways of doing it. This happened when Snowden uh, released his documents. You had public figures actually saying he should be executed or assassinated uh, for treason. Right. And and so you know this is the kind of thing. It, it, it's it's no good. It's wrong. But if you're not a person who has any kind of public standing, you have no ability to carry out such a thing. And if you're saying should and not will, as as Ralston first reported, first he said the guy said he would or will or she would or would uh, she would be hung or burned, which is that is a threat. But he didn't say that. He said should. And so Boston first reported that. That was his lead. And then later that, in the that, day, a, he put up that, the piece that's a thin, without a correction. But isn't that kind of a thin line? I mean, I really wouldn't focus on that too much. I mean, the, the intent there was really, as you point out in your article, just completely wrong. You know, I mean, the, the mm-hmm. intent and the expression uh, of that in a phone call. I mean, that's, that's just wrong. And It's but, harassment. It's, it's yeah. It's, uh, you know, that kind of thing is uh, um, uh, the kind of thing that I, as a pacifist, would say uh, uh, in this kind of situation and, and, and aimed at a woman is um, is violence. I have a pretty strict definition of violence. This just, uh, just, but, um, you well, know, I, but it's not, it's not, um, I think I it's think, not a threat. No, it's I understand. Not, it's not a threat. I understand. But I think what, peop, what what people don't understand. We don't, I'm sorry. We only have a couple of minutes. Left. What people don't yeah. get, and you mentioned this a couple of times already. By the way, you're listening to Doug Johnson, Hatlam, and he's a contributor to uh, Counterpunch and various other places too. I assume, right? Yeah, yeah I've, I've published uh, a bit in the Toronto Star, or Fire Dog Lake, uh, some academic journals. So okay. Um, what people don't really get is why Sanders reporters are so outraged. You know, yeah, the individual people, so what? But why on Moss they're so outraged? Because they are actually being treated as if they don't live in a democracy. They're being rolled right, right. over by corporations and by the central core of the Democratic Party. They don't get it. People don't get this. And they can't, And they have a hard, trouble get, hard time getting it because the only place they're going to get it is on Counterpunch or other places online or whatever, not from the mass of corporate media, you know. No, you're not. And, and I think the, the, the nub of the issue, as I said, is this disenfranchisement issue you mentioned. And I wrote... Uh, one of the articles that I wrote that in my series on taking uh, election fraud allegations seriously, and I really tried to take the arguments for and against it as seriously as could be. But um, I, one of my articles is entitled uh, "Purged, Hacked, Switched," and there are just uh, 
hundreds now of verifiable cases of people who should have been eligible to vote, who are Sanders supporters, who were flipped off the rolls against their will mm. uh, and not able to vote in mixed or closed primaries. Uh, and, and the same is happening at caucuses and conventions. And this is partly what happened in Nevada, where 58 people were told they weren't Democrats and they weren't allowed to vote. They weren't allowed to be part of the, the convention process, even though in Nevada you can only... Um, participate in, in any of the caucuses to begin with if you're a Democrat, and they had same-day registration in the initial caucus. So there was no way that these people were not Democrats, at least when the last caucus happened. But so they my, were uh, off the roll against their wills. My engineer is telling me that we're, that we're running out of time here. Um, mm. Is there a place where people can go to read your articles or to see what you're doing, like a, a website or something like that, or should they just look for stuff on Counterpunch? Or how, how would people hear The easiest way is to search my name. Uh, you find one article that I've done on Counterpunch. Counterpunch Hatlam is a good way to Google it. And then you click on my name, and, and all the articles I've written there uh, will pull up uh, uh, immediately, and, and that's the easiest way to, to tra- track this, including the six-part series, Taking Election Fraud allegation seriously okay counterpunch and uh we're uh listening have been listening to doug johnson hatlam last name spelled h-a-t-l-e-m when you're looking for it thanks so much for uh for this report and it's things like this that uh that finally help people hear the truth when there's so little of the truth available thank you thank you mike i enjoyed being on your show okay um that's it for this week we'll be back uh not I don't know if we're back next week. Um, are we? Yeah, maybe. Maybe what we'll have is a rebroadcast because I think we're. Uh, it's Memorial Day next week, but we'll be back soon, and I'll see you then. Devil